It is a pleasure to get to be with you. You get to spend one last week in the book of Genesis and attempt something fairly difficult and some might think even foolish, which is summarize the 30 some odd chapters that we've jumped over. But I think it can be done. As we get ready to look at the very end of this book and try to summarize the theology and the story that it contains, I'd like to begin with perhaps a somewhat random question. And that question is, when you find yourself on a long road trip, tired, needing to to make a stop, what is your ideal gas station that you want to stop at? What gas station comes to mind as being the picture-perfect gas station to provide that necessary rest and caffeine boost? If you've never driven for more than a couple hours, I suppose that might be a weird question, but I trust that if you've driven just even that far, you have come to understand the value that a nice, clean, well-managed gas station really brings to the table, particularly if you have young kids that are begging to get out of the vehicle for a few minutes. I don't know what your gas station is. Maybe it's a Love's, a, a Quick Trip. But I assure you, they all pale in comparison to the greatest gas station in the world, which is Bucky's. Now, if you've never been to a Bucky's, I feel sorry for you, quite frankly, because they're glorious. They're beautiful. They are gigantic. And they are the greatest pit stop you could possibly find on the road. Growing up in Texas, this was a must-see as we would drive out to Houston every year to see family. You can now find Bucky's in a variety of locations nationwide. But if you've never gone to a Bucky's, just know that, that it's not a normal gas station. There's not just 10 gas pumps where you're going to have to wait in line. There's dozens and dozens and dozens of gas pumps. There's not just a a little pit stop inside a building with, uh, you know, to-do coffee maker and a few snacks. There's, There's a supermarket inside. There's souvenirs. And in Texas, there's about a thousand Texas-related souvenirs you can purchase for no small amount of money. There's all the food you could possibly ever desire. And most importantly, there are the cleanest restrooms you will ever set foot in. Cleaner, I dare say, than the restrooms every single one of us had back in our own homes. It's a beautiful place. And even if you've never set foot in Bucky's or seen and experienced the joy of, of seeing the first billboard alerting you to Bucky's in 100 miles, you understand. That, that peace and that relief that you feel when you see that favorite pit stop coming, when you see that you are within range of that nearest gas station, from the midst of being tired, in the midst of being fatigued, in the midst of just growing weary of our drive, we all need that occasional break. We need that caffeine. We need a bit of food. We need to refuel. But regardless of how beautiful the pit stop might be, even if it is Bucky's, We all, of course, understand that that's not the final resting place, is it? Regardless of how much you might enjoy your particular favorite uh, gas station, you know eventually you're going to have to get back in the car. You're going to have to get back on that same road and continue to follow those same signs to that final destination that awaits you. As we come to the end of Genesis, we find ourselves in a fairly unique pit stop in the history of Israel. We find ourselves having jumped from Ur of the Chaldeans in Genesis 12, all the way to Egypt. A unique nation, a wealthy nation, a nation that to the ancient world represented the greatest amount of security that you could possibly enjoy. And as we come to this final chapter, we must ask ourselves, of course, well, how did we get here? What road has been traveled by Abraham and his ancestors to to come forward all this way? As we look at that, we must ask ourselves what have been the constant signposts, the constant theology that has guided the people, but most importantly, we must understand what lies beyond Egypt. What is Israel ultimately headed towards, and what does that have to do with us? As we look at this chapter, and really as we try to unfold the many chapters of Genesis, my hope, my prayer this morning is that we might walk away not just with a better understanding of the story of Genesis, both a greater appreciation of the fact that this is our story. This story isn't just unique to Israel, it, it belongs to us as well. The long path that we will discuss is a path that all of us know well in our own lives. The constant signposts that guided the people of God in Genesis, the guide to the people of God in the ancient Near East, continue to guide His people today. 
And just like Israel, our current resting spot is not our final destination. And so too, as we close the book of Genesis, we are reminded to be like Joseph, to be like the countless others like him, and not set our eyes on just our present comfort and our present security, but set our eyes on eternity. As we do this, I pray that we might walk away all the more encouraged, all the more hopeful of what God has in store for us. With that being said, before we dig into the path that has led to Egypt, let's again pray, focus, and pray for God's blessing on our time. God, we thank you for one last week to look at this book. And God, obviously we are having to skip over so much content, so many stories, so many men and women that you have blessed, that you've used. But God, as we close our time today in Genesis, we pray for your blessing to be upon this discussion. We pray that you cause us to understand the story of Genesis. That you cause us to understand that, that overarching theme that speaks to your sovereignty, that speaks to your faithfulness, God. God, those of us who are saved, we pray this morning that we might see ourselves in the story, that we might see how it applies to our own journey that you've placed us on. We might apply the lessons that Israel had to learn and the church before us has had to learn, God. For those who have not yet placed their faith in you as always, God, I pray for their salvation this morning. And as beautiful as this story is, God, I pray they understand this is not yet their story. But I pray that they might make it so today, God, by placing their faith in your son, God, save them from their sin this moment, we pray. As always, please remove all distractions from us, cause us to be focused entirely upon your word, transfixed by the beauty of this narrative, transfixed by your glorious hand that led it all. We love you, God. Bless our time this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as our passage opens up, as Andy read a few moments ago, it opens up in a somewhat surprising scene there in Genesis 50, verse 22 through 23. Again, we read, Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons, also the sons of Machir, the sons of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. Now, if you were with us last time we were in Genesis, you will remember again that, that we were in a very different place in this narrative. We were back just freshly in the land of Canaan. We only had Abram and Sarah and, and Lot and the few people that Abram was able to take with him. And so, of course, the first question we must ask is, is how do we get here? How, how do you go from getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden down to Ur of the Chaldeans, then entering into the land of Canaan, the land that is promised, and then end up in Egypt. How did we get here? What path was traversed? It's hard to summarize that path. It's hard to summarize that journey. But thankfully in our text, we see Joseph actually give us a, a pretty helpful key, a pretty helpful summary statement to help us understand exactly what has occurred. That summary statement is found not in the first couple of verses, but if you jump to verse 24, you see the summary of this travel. For in verse 24, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. As Joseph is about to die, something we'll speak on here a little mo in a few moments, he offers this very brief summary of the history of his people. A summary that is defined by this path traveled by three main figures. Those three main figures being Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, we are all vaguely familiar, I think, with most of these figures. But to us, these, these individuals represent nothing more than a few popular Bible stories. But of course, to Joseph, these names meant much more. To the people of Israel who originally received this text, these names meant much more, didn't they? For these aren't just three random figures from stories. These are three patriarchs of your faith. Three great figures that God used to pass the righteous seed down that was long ago promised in Genesis chapter 3. And these figures then play a central role in understanding the unfolding narrative of Israel on their way to Egypt and ultimately out. Now, we know a little bit about one of these patriarchs that patriarch being Abram or Abraham. If you turn back to Genesis 12, you will see again that famous passage as God calls Abraham out of Ur. 
And in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, we read these famous verses. The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This passage in Genesis chapter 12 is vitally important to the unfolding story of Genesis. It cannot be overstated how central this calling is. For these few words spoken by God to the first patriarch Abraham defined everything really that would come forth afterwards. For it is here that God makes this grand promise not just to Abraham but to the world as a whole. Here in Abraham suddenly we're given the first picture of how the fall depicted in Genesis 3 would finally be reversed. Of how the curse would finally be removed. Of how we could finally regain that paradise that was lost in sin. As many of you already know, of course, Abraham did not experience the fulfillment of these promises. He died at the age of 175, having seen God do a few things here or there, but still he died as a sojourner, as a foreigner in the land promised. Yet despite that fact, Abraham did see the birth of his son, Isaac. That son born to Abraham at the age of 100. That son being the second great name referenced in Joseph's great summary of the people of Israel. Isaac, too, is given the blessing by God later on in Genesis. Passages like Genesis chapter 28 reveal the fact that God used the same promise He had given to Abraham and He passes it down to Isaac. One of the places you find this is Genesis 28.13 where we read, Behold, the Lord stood above it, that is, speaking to Jacob in a dream, or speaking to Isaac, I I should say, speaking to Isaac in chapter 22. And he tells Isaac that like his father Abraham, he has promised these same descendants. He's promised a great nation. He's promised the same thing that Abraham is promised. Isaac, like Abraham, lives a relatively long life. Isaac, like Abraham, sees a number of things that God does for him. But like, before, but like his father before him, Isaac never sees the final fulfillment. And so Isaac dies on the age of 180. But before he dies, Isaac too is given a son. That son being the third and final name in our summary. That name, of course, being Jacob. The man who would one day be renamed Israel. Jacob too is born, this time as the third patriarch. And like Isaac before him, and like Abraham before Isaac, Jacob is given that same promise. Jacob lives a relatively long life. Jacob lives through all these trials and tribulations. And at the end of it all, well, Jacob also dies. His death recorded towards the very end of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 49 and 50. But like Isaac and like Abraham before he dies, Jacob references the promises that God has made to him. Promises that he reminds Joseph of. Promises that he no doubt reminds all his sons of. That promise being a promise of a nation. That promise being the promise of of people. That promise being the promise of a curse reversed. And it's the end of that long line you finally come to Joseph. It's a fairly effective way to summarize that nation's history. And in fact, these same names are repeated time and time again. And the rest of the Old Testament is referencing those early days of Israel. And yet, while that path is better understood by these names, it is, of course, important to appreciate the fact that things weren't always that straightforward, were they? Things were not as clean as just saying, Abraham was called, then Isaac was born, then Jacob was born, the end of Genesis. There's far more twists and turns than that in the story of Genesis. Far more unexpected trials that arrive seemingly at every turn of the corner of their path trials and tribulations that appear to threaten the viability of the people of God. Threaten that righteous seed. Threaten the eventual conclusion that the people of God so eagerly anticipated. Those trials can be read in great detail through the lives of those patriarchs mentioned. While those patriarchs are regarded as great men of faith, they lived through tremendous difficulties. 
Many of you are familiar already with some of those difficulties, namely in the life of Abraham. For when God called Abraham, what primary difficulty faced Abraham? Well, it's infertility, wasn't it? For the time of Abraham's calling, he's married to Sarah, Sarah who was barren, Sarah who had no kids, and so the promise to Abraham for lots of kids seemed a little unlikely. Yet Abraham follows the calling, and eventually, of course, we see God fulfill the calling to him. But it would be foolish to think that that was the one trial or difficulty that faced the people of God early on. For it seems trials and difficulties came up year to year to year to year. Whether it's the struggle of infertility, the struggle of relationships with foreign land, the struggle of warfare. There are countless examples in the, in the lives of the patriarchs of, of conflict within the family. The patriarchs themselves are guilty of great sins that cause some of that division, that cause some of these difficulties. And by the time you get to Joseph, it seems like a downright miracle that this Hebrew line is even still in existence. For they've lived through so much. And unfortunately for Joseph, the trials didn't end with the patriarchs, did they? For if we had time to read through the entire life of Joseph, we would see that Joseph himself lived a life that, that appears to have every single trial and tribulation you could possibly imagine. For not only does he suffer under family division, he suffers severely in family division. For his brothers were so embittered against him that they sought to kill him. But after roughing him up a bit, looking to leave him for dead, they decided, in a very brotherly fashion, we can make a few bucks off this guy. And so they sell their brother into slavery. And so as a teenager, Joseph is sold into slavery. And as many of you already know the story, Joseph goes into this life of slavery, but he appears to be blessed by God, and he seems to be righteous, building up a great reputation, and one could perhaps think, oh, here it comes. Here comes his great blessing. And then what happens to Joseph? He's wrongfully accused of sexual misconduct. He's thrown into prison. And he rots away in a prison for years, some commentators think up to 12 years of his life spent in silence, spent in darkness, and spent in a place for a crime he never committed. Of course, eventually God brings him up from that pit. God blesses him greatly by giving him power within Egypt, and eventually the final great twist and turn in the narrative brings us to the point where, where Joseph is in essence Pharaoh's right-hand man. And through him, the nation of Egypt is greatly blessed. Through him, the nations come to Egypt for help. Through him, those brothers that had once sought to kill him are brought back for a blessed family reunion. And because of Joseph, because of the horrible things Joseph's brothers did to him, but ultimately, of course, because of the righteous hand that was at work in Joseph's life, by the time you come to the end of Genesis, you see the people of God, the Hebrew people, are now living there in Egypt. It is an end truly that no one could possibly have predicted when God called Abraham in Genesis 12. No one could have seen this coming. Not one of us would have predicted this is the route, this is the road that God would, people, that God would take his people down in fulfillment of his promises. And yet as unpredictable as the lives of the patriarchs were, as unpredictable as that path to Egypt was, I think if any one of us takes a step back, and surveys our life, we all would recognize that, that such is life. While our lives aren't as unpredictable as Joseph, of course, we live in a world in which life by definition is unpredictable. It is at times chaotic. And for most of us, I think, if the 10-year-old version of ourselves could look at us now, a lot of them would be downright confused as to how we got there. I can assure you that 10-year-old Ben Beswick had no thought at all that 38-year-old Ben Beswick would be standing in a pulpit in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, preaching. That would be an utterly bizarre thing for me to have seen as a 10-year-old. I would have not understood. I would have said, surely God has made a mistake along the way. That is the lot in life each one of us have. Life is full of unpredictable twists and turns. Some of those turns are blessed. Some of those turns are great. They are gracious. They are beautiful. They are joyful. You think of relationships you enjoy, blessings that God passes down to you that you could have never predicted. 
But of course we understand many other twists and turns are not quite as enjoyable, are they? And there are moments when we look at our life and we ask ourselves, how did I get here? And we're not asking it with a smile on our face. We're asking it while weeping. And asking God to explain why He's doing this to us. And certainly we all are familiar with language like that which Paul uses in Romans 8.28 and how we are told time and time again that God works out everything for the good of those who love the Lord. But quite frankly, oftentimes those words sound a bit cliche to us. Particularly when the twists and turns have led us to a moment of great pain and suffering. In the midst of that pain and suffering, it could feel as if the world has been turned upside down. And in the midst of being confused as to where we've been brought in life, it can feel as if God's hand has somehow been taken off of us. That he's no longer in control. And one could only assume that to an outside observer looking at Joseph in this text in Genesis 50, it certainly would feel as if God has lost the plot. That the narrative has been buried. And yet as we come back to Genesis 50, and as we consider all those twists and turns, the, the, the path that has led to Egypt, we are reminded of the fact that, that despite the difficulties, despite the unpredictable twists and turns, there have been certain things that have remained constant. And in fact, it's those constant things that Joseph is speaking of here in Genesis 50. It's those constant things that led the people of God to this point without losing sight of the one who is in charge. We see Joseph speaking of those realities Again, in verse 24 through 25 of Genesis 50, there we read, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you, bring you up from this land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. As Joseph, this godly man who's been used greatly by God, is about to come to the end of his life, we see he has not forgotten those constant signposts, those constant things that have guided the people of God, kept them on path, kept them within the will of God. And two particular doctrines that he speaks of here speak both to the nature of God, that is who they serve, but also the nature of man. Now as we try to summarize the nature of God as it's revealed in Genesis, we come to a difficult challenge for Genesis reveals so much about God to us. So many foundational truths. But two central components of who God is that Joseph no doubt relied on heavily speak to the idea of God being creator or redeemer and God being sovereign. That role of God as creator was the role that we began with in Genesis, wasn't it? From the very beginning of the book of Genesis, Moses, the author, impresses upon us the fact that God and God alone is that almighty creator. For as we read so many months ago in Genesis 1, the story begins with these famous words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you recall in our discussion of this text, this, this imagery of God is so different, so much more powerful than the imagery of of other gods that are preached in, the old, uh, in, in that ancient world. For it is only Yahweh, it is only the God of the Bible, who is able to create with his mere word, with his mere breath. God and God alone creates. And God's role as creator is essential because it establishes the fact that God is the owner of everything. It is God who defines beauty. It is God who defines what is good, what, de- what is bad. And it is God that sets everything and everyone within the parameters that he has set before them. Meaning, nature does not get to choose its ultimate purpose. Man does not get to choose his ultimate goals, his ultimate purpose in life. God defines it all. God does so because he is the only creator. But just as he is the only creator of all of creation, God is also established early on Genesis as that redeemer and creator of nations as well. For God does not create all of humanity and step back and in essence say, okay, well you guys take it from here. No. God is much more intricately involved as the creator. He's much more intimately involved in the lives of his creation. And we see that intimate involvement particularly in this narrative of Genesis, this narrative of building up this new nation. 
the nation that would eventually be called Israel. We referenced this nation and that promise earlier on in Genesis 12. And as we read throughout the book of Genesis, we see that that role of God is redeeming the nation, bringing this nation up, building them up, giving them strength, is central to who He is. And time and time again, the people of God in Genesis are reminded of this fact. that You serve this Creator God. He owns everything. He owns you. And He will build you up. Tied in with that idea of God as being creator and redeemer, of course, is that all-important understanding that God is also revealed as sovereign. This is so essential to understand in the book of Genesis because remove the sovereignty, and again, it, it feels like things have gone off the tracks. But the people of God were reminded constantly, no, no, this is all God's will. This is all by God's hand. We saw this, of course, on display in the life of Abraham. For it's only a sovereign God, that is a God who controls all things, that could call a man married to a barren woman and still produce a kid. Only a sovereign God could do that. Only a sovereign God could call a man in the order of the Chaldeans and predict where he eventually will end up. Only a sovereign God can do that. And in case you miss out on that sovereignty throughout the book of Genesis, you come to the end of the life of Joseph and the sovereignty of God cannot be denied in the life of Joseph. For as we mentioned earlier, Joseph has lived through tremendous turmoil. Complete and utter chaos. Living his life in the land of his fathers, being sold into slavery, almost dying, being wrongfully accused, spending years in prison, being brought up and ultimately becoming Pharaoh's right-hand man. Surely the world looks upon these events and they say, wow, what great luck of Joseph eventually. Oh boy, he really lucked out there in the end and yet Joseph looks at all these events and Joseph doesn't see luck. Joseph doesn't see random events happening. No, Joseph sees the hand of God intricately causing everything. If you don't believe me, you can hear Joseph's words himself. For just before our text in Genesis 50, 22 through 26, look up a bit. At Genesis chapter 50, and verses 18 through 21. It is in this text that their father has recently died, that is, Joseph and his brother's father has died, and his brothers are rightly worried about what Joseph's going to do to him. I mean, if you had sold your brother into slavery, I trust this isn't something any of you could relate to, but if you've sold someone into slavery, if you've abused them, you're probably going to perhaps worry that they might take vengeance upon you if they have the ability to someday. That's the concern of Joseph's brothers. And so as, as they come to the end of the story in verse 18, they are looking to try to, in essence, beg for Joseph's mercy. And we pick that narrative up in verse 18 of Genesis 50. We read, Then his brothers also came and fell down before him, that is to Joseph, and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. For am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about the present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I'll provide for you and your little ones. And so he comforted them and spoke kindly to him. Who does Joseph blame for all the events that have unfolded? Who does Joseph say is responsible for being sold into slavery? Who does Joseph say is responsible for all of these terrible events? Not his brothers, not Pharaoh, not Potiphar's wife, the one who wrongfully accused him. He speaks to God. And he says, ultimately, it's God's will that's been done. God is the one sovereign over all of these things, and therefore he's not bitter against his brothers. Now, that is not, of course, to suggest that this removes human responsibility, for we are held responsible for the wicked deeds we accomplish. But it is to say that God is ultimately over all of these things. It is to say that when Paul says that God works out everything to the good of those who love him, he's not just speaking of those great happy things that happen to us. He's speaking of the darkest moments as well. God is infinitely sovereign in everything. Just as he is the creator over everything. The point in all of this then, is that when we hear this name of God spoken by Joseph in Genesis 50, we are given this reminder from all of Genesis that we are speaking of a God that is very different from anything and anyone else in all of creation. We are speaking of the God who owns everything, the God who rules over everything, the God whose will cannot be thwarted. 
we are reminded of the fact from Genesis and forward that this is all God's world and it is God's will that is always accomplished. Having said that, however, we must still understand who we are. What does that then make us? Who is man? This again was one of those central questions we raised early on in our study of Genesis. A central question that everyone must explore and consider. And in the book of Genesis, in the life of Joseph, we really can see two, broad, two answers. One broad and one specific. The broad answer is the answer that we explored for much of our time in Genesis 1-12. through 12. It's that understanding that all of us, men, women, and children, are all equally made in God's image. You remember that foundational principle back in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, we read, God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. This concept of being made in the image of God is is central to understanding who we are, for it reminds us we are unique from the rest of creation. It is this principle that's picked up time and time again throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. This unique value that is placed upon every man, woman, and child is the reason why Israelites are commanded to treat people with dignity. Why loving one another is so essential. You continue to move on in the New Testament and it's the same concept that's preached over and over and over again. The reason why we care about the unborn, the reason why we care about the immigrant, the reason why we care about the dying is because they are all equally made in the image of God. And to treat them as anything less than that is blasphemy against God's image. This is a central understanding of who we are as His people. And yet as beautiful as that is, it's not the only answer that ultimately Joseph is pointing to and reminding his brothers, reminding us who we are. For as Joseph comes to the end of his life, he doesn't simply speak to that universal identity, but he speaks to that unique identity as well. For again, we read in verse 24 of Genesis 50, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It's not enough to understand that we are all made in the image of God. It is also essential to take from Genesis this understanding that we, the people of God, are set apart. We are different. This is a point that Joseph is making very clearly even in his dying breath. Even while dying in Egypt, Joseph's able to confidently say to his brothers, this isn't our home, guys. We don't belong here. We are different. We are set apart. We are headed somewhere else. They could not forget that. They must not forget that. The same type of particular identity is picked up throughout all the Old Testament as the Israelites are continually reminded to not be like the other nations, but to be Israel, set apart for God. You come to the New Testament and things don't change, do they? From the New Testament, we see the same concept preached time and time again, perhaps most famously in 1 Peter. For verse Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, we read these Essential words describing our identity. There Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and who is marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent amongst the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. In the same way the Israelites were reminded in the Exodus, in the years that followed, so too are we reminded in the New Testament we are different. Everyone, yes, is made equally in the image of God, but the people of God are set apart. This defines who we are. It defines what we do. How we live. And this identity was so important to impress upon them throughout the book of Genesis. For as you move out of Genesis into Exodus, you see how quickly the people of God forgot this, don't you? 
You see how quickly Israel so desperately wanted to be like everyone else. It was out of the desperation that they demanded a king because they wanted to look like everyone else. They wanted the same politics as everyone else. It's out of that desire that they marry with other nations, that they, they, wage, or they wage war in ways they are not commanded to wage war. It's out of that desire that time and time again, even after entering into the promised land, they get kicked out because they forget where they belong. They forget their place. They forget their identity. And so it was time and time again essential for them to look back to these pages of Genesis to hear the words of Joseph to remind them, you are different. And it's no less important for us to hear today, is it? For just as it was a constant temptation for the people of Israel to be like the nations, it is a constant temptation for you and I to want to be like everyone else. We might not see it always, but we all struggle with this. Universally, we struggle placing our identity entirely in Christ. I don't know what you personally are trying to place your identity in, where your blind spot is. Perhaps it's overly devotion to family and identifying yourself by the success of your kids, by the success of your marriage. Perhaps it's an obsession with career and identifying yourself with your finances, identifying yourselves by your next promotion, by the authority given to you by man. Maybe your identity is placed in nation and it's obsession with patriotism and obsession with politics. Whatever it is, we all have those things in our life. We all are prone to identify ourselves as American first, as husband and wife first, as employee first. And when we do this, well, eventually we start to look like everyone else. We forget who we are. And so just as it was essential for the Israelites to take this lesson of our identity from Genesis, it remains just as essential for us. For just as Genesis reveals that this is God's world, Genesis also reveals that we are God's children. And we are therefore called to be different. It's a beautiful reality. And in fact, as we jump back to Genesis 50 and consider that, that language of Joseph as he identifies himself not with Pharaoh, not with the wealth of Egypt, but with immigrants, with sojourners like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we see something that is truly beautiful, truly sweet. And yet as sweet and beautiful as it is, as we see it within this context of 50, there's also something Initially tragic about it, isn't it? Uh, for while we can romanticize the concept of being a sojourner, the actual experience of being a sojourner is incredibly bittersweet at times. For it is the constant reminder that you don't belong here. You don't fit in. And it's a reality that Joseph clearly had at the forefront of his own mind. For here we see a man who has enjoyed the greatest wealth you could enjoy at this point in his life. I'm sure, yes, he's gone through trials and tribulations, but man, look what it led to. How amazing. And yet as he surveys all of that, as he surveys the many children at his feet, Joseph still comes to the very end and says, what? This isn't our home. This is just a pit stop. And as glorious as Egypt was, it's nothing more than a gas station. It was, if you will, the buckies of the ancient Near East. I think that's a safe statement. And Joseph understood that. And it's with that understanding that he speaks not just of the path that has led there, not just of those signposts, the constant doctrines that remain unchanging, but it's with his constant focus on that guaranteed path home. There's that path that Joseph sees as he dies. If we read once more, chapter 50, verse 24 through 25. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. With his dying breath, Joseph makes one last reference to this ancient promise. The promise that we read earlier is the promise that God made to Abram back in Genesis chapter 12. That promise which, as we read, speaks of this future country, this future nation. 
It spoke of this promise of, of the reverse of the curse, the return to paradise. And it was that promise that was given first to Abraham and that was then passed down generation after generation after generation. That promise that remained central to the identity of God's people. It was a promise first of, of kids, of building up this people group that began with a man and his barren wife. It was the promise of land, promise of land made to an immigrant, a sojourner who had no place to call home. And a promise that was passed down for future generations of sojourners. It was a promise of ultimate restoration. And as we've mentioned, at the end of each of these great patriarchs' lives, and even at the end of Joseph's life, there's, there's certainly glimpses of fulfillment, aren't there? I mean, consider just even this picture of Joseph's dying days, of, of who he's surrounded by. Remember, this began with a promise for kids to Abraham and his barren wife, Sarah, and it ends in the life of Joseph on his deathbed, Surrounded by kids. Up to three generations of Ephraim's, of Ephraim's promised line. There's an element of that that then is, is precious, isn't it? And think of what Abraham would say if he could see that. If he could have looked at the future and seen Joseph surrounded by children. Surrounded by brothers. What a beautiful picture of God's faithfulness. Yet, even in that beauty... Joseph is not fully satisfied, is he? For he knows that's not it. He knows the promise wasn't wealth in Egypt and a bunch of kids. The promise wasn't to be joined with another nation like Egypt. The promise was for their own nation, for their own home, for their own identity separate from the rest of the world. And so as beautiful as this picture is, as Joseph dies, he does not look to those children. He does not look to his home in Egypt. He looks to a home he has not yet seen or has not seen in years and years and years since his brothers sold him into slavery. While he has not seen that home in years, he speaks of it with absolute confidence. For he says again, God will surely take care of you. God will bring you up from this land. God will give you the land that he promised our ancestors. And so confident is Joseph that he demands his brothers to do what? Carry my bones out of this place. What certainty. What confidence. It's a confidence that, that Joseph clearly inherited from, from past patriarchs. For as glorious as Joseph's words were, they're not unique for, for his father Jacob demanded a, a similar request at his own death for he demanded that, that Joseph not bury him in Egypt but take his body back to the promised land, back to the land of Canaan to be buried. It's the same type of confidence that Isaac carried with him as he returned back to the land of Canaan. It's the same confidence that carried Abraham out of the land of Ur into a land that he did not yet understand, a land that he did not even know existed. It is a certainty, a confidence inherited by the, from the patriarchs and it is a certainty, a confidence that is rooted always in the character of God. Rooted always in that understanding that God is creator, that God is sovereign. And if God is those things, then God can provide what God promised. As Joseph dies, he dies with the certainty because he sees how God has blessed his ancestors and he knows therefore that God will continue to provide. That God will bring this people up. That same certainty does not end with Joseph. It, it's passed on to the rest of the Israelites. And you can imagine the level of that confidence that must have been felt by this original audience as they were looking across the Jordan about to enter into the promised land. And they could see God's faithfulness. They could see how he was in fact faithful to bring them up out of Exodus. But it doesn't even stop with them for future generations of Israelites are told time and time again, remember God. The same one that brought you up out of Egypt. He'll rescue you again. As the Israelites fail time and time again and get kicked out of the promised land time and time again, they're reminded those promises are still yours. And so you read in passages like 1 Samuel chapter 12 or Hosea 12, 13 and 14. 
Or Jeremiah chapter 16, Jeremiah 23, time and time again, these prophets speak of the fact that God will once again act on His people's behalf. That God will bring them up. That God will again rescue them and give them the home they so desperately desire. It's a beautiful certainty that is seen in the life of Joseph. An unbelievable confidence that's seen in the lives of those who came after him. The lives of those recorded in passages like Hebrews 11. And yet as beautiful it is, as certain as they were, it's a certainty that should belong to us as well. For as much evidence as Joseph had to point out, we have more. As many promises that God had partially fulfilled in the book of Genesis, we have infinitely more promises we can point to as being fulfilled. Not by Joseph, not by Moses, not by these other fallen figures, but we have Christ. We have the greatest fulfillment of the greatest promise made. We don't simply look at a land, we look at the restoration that was actually accomplished in Jesus Christ. And as such, we don't simply have the words of Joseph to rely on, we have the words of the Son of God. Words like those recorded in John 14. In John 14, as Jesus is preparing his disciples for his exit, he speaks these words of comfort. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Brothers and sisters, do you understand how precious this promise is? Do you understand the certainty that this promise ought to bring us? For while Joseph was looking to his fallen brothers to carry his dead bones into the promised land, we are told that the Son of God Himself will carry us home. That God Himself has accomplished this, that He will come again and He will take us to that place that we've not yet seen, but the place we so desperately desire to live in. It is a reality that is so certain that regardless of how difficult our life, or how difficult our life might be, how, how troubling our circumstances might be, it can remain central to our mindset. It can remain right before us. But in order to do so, we must learn from that precious example of Joseph. If we look back one last time at Genesis 50, we read these precious final words in verses 25 and 26. Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you. You shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years. He was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Like his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather before him, Joseph didn't see the promised land, at least not in fulfillment that God promised. Geographically speaking, Joseph dies hundreds of miles away from the land of Canaan. Historically speaking, Joseph dies hundreds and hundreds of years before they will cross the Jordan River. Yet despite that distance in time, despite that distance in space, despite the fact that his eyes are failing him in death, Joseph dies and speaks of the promised land as if it's a reality that sits just before him. And so he dies in peace, knowing full well that what God said he would accomplish, he would accomplish. Knowing full well that while that path to Egypt has been long and difficult, that while the path home might be even longer and more difficult, that it is just as certain, and that its end is infinitely sweeter than anything we could ever imagine. This is a truth from Genesis that was essential for the original audience to understand, and it's a truth that remains central and vitally important for us to understand today. And so as we step back from all of this, I understand there are many of you here who, who do not yet know Christ. And so please let me impress upon you one last time and tell you as beautiful as this story is, it's not your story. For you're part of the other nations. You're not saved by the righteous seed apart from Christ. 
And so please do not see beauty in this and just assume it belongs to you. It does not. Rather, in Genesis, see this progress, see the story, but take warning. For the same God that judges the nations in the story of Babel, the same God that brought judgment upon the enemies of Israel, is the same God that will damn your soul to hell if you reject him. You cannot escape him. You cannot overpower him. You cannot hide. You can only repent of your sin and believe. Believe in Jesus Christ. For in so doing, you will find yourself in this precious story. In so doing, you will find yourself with that same promised land that lies ahead of you. I pray you do that this morning. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, we ought to rejoice in the fact that this beautiful story is our story. And as we're reminded of these precious truths from books like Genesis, we must be quick to preach them to ourselves, to remind ourselves daily, who is God and who am I? And just as we are quick to preach that to ourselves, we must remind our brothers and sisters in Christ. We must remind our brothers and sisters in Christ of the faithfulness of God. See what God's done for me. See what God's done in the past. And know that God will act on your behalf in the future. As we share that story with ourselves, with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and with the dying world around us, we do so with that great anticipation and the utmost confidence in the fact that as beautiful as the story has been, it pales in comparison to the beauty that is yet to be seen. And as glorious as the resurrection of Christ was, our own future resurrection will also be beautiful and can be relied upon daily. And so as we consider this story, then we must consider not just where it starts, but where it ends. And, and summarizing that ending, Kevin DeYoung, in his tremendous book, The Biggest Story, says this, Our King, Christ, is coming back again. He will wipe away all the bad guys and wipe away every tear. He is coming to make a new beginning to finish what he started. He's coming to give us the home we once had and perhaps have forgotten that we lost. So, brothers, we keep waiting for him, keep believing in him, keep trusting that the story isn't over yet. God's promises never fail. The promised one never disappoints. One day we will see him. One day we will be with him. One day there will be nothing but the best of days, day after day after day after day. And forever and ever it will be a wonderful time to be God's children in God's wonderful world. It's an ending that feels at times like a fairy tale. But it's an ending that's guaranteed in Christ. And so let us live daily with anticipation of that future event. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. We thank you for Genesis. We thank you for people like Joseph, for Isaac, for Jacob, for Abraham, for Moses, for David, for Samuel, for all our heroes of the Old Testament, for all our heroes of the New Testament, for all our own personal heroes of the faith. But most of all, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. For he alone can accomplish what none of them could accomplish. He alone can give us not just a, a passing promised land, a paradise that can be lost, but he alone gives us new life. He alone establishes your kingdom, and he alone will someday bring us home to you, God. Jesus, come today. Please save us from this place. But as we wait, might we not forget who you are? Might we not forget who we are? Might we not forget how we are called to the, therefore live? We praise you, God. We love you. Bless our time as we close. In Jesus' name, amen.